I want to share with you about something that's, that struck me as very, very important as we do our Christian walk, and that is looking at the possibility that sometimes we use the wrong scorecard to look and measure our own faith. Sometimes it's so easy to use culture and what culture teaches us about who we are called to be and, and who we're supposed to be as a follower of Jesus. But I want to look really um, specifically at some of the things, especially that it's so easy to allow us to think, yeah, I'm good with God. I've, everything's going great, um, when maybe it's not. You know, through the millennium, there have been a lot of different religions and one that I was really intrigued with is we, we were blessed to have a sister church in El Salvador. And I remember so vividly the first time that I went to visit our brothers and sisters in El Salvador, and we were involved in mission and doing things with them. But occasionally they would take us to see some of their um, treasures that they have as part of El Salvador. And one of the things that we saw were Mayan ruins. And as we were there, I realized that when I was in junior high, I think, and we were looking at Mayan culture and, and the, the pyramids that they had, I never thought I would see one, you know, that feeling. And so just seeing these, these giant old um, pyramids that were developed, it, it really just struck me as like, wow, this is amazing. But as we walked through, I saw, uh, and they were doing a little tour, there's this little courtyard. And they mentioned that this little courtyard off to the side of the Mayan temple is where they would do games. Now, the games were typically of where they would capture people from other tribes and other areas and bring them locally. And then they would do different types of competitions. And the losers of the competitions would be sacrificed to their, their gods that they had within their Mayan worship. And I'm just struck there of hell awful it was that within this space you know a thousand years ago that this was going on in this place but for them they mistakenly thought they were getting good with their god by showing how important their god is to them by killing other human beings you know how awful is that about thinking that's what needs to be to be going on to be able to have a, a connection with their god i just thought that was was horrible um but you know, also in um, some Native American cultures and some other cultures around the globe too, they do something else that I, I think is horrible. They do things to inflict pain upon themselves to show their devotion to God. And it comes in many shapes and forms that we won't go into. But just how awful it is that people think that by doing these certain things, they're getting in good with God causing pain to themselves to show devotion. And then also, if we look to biblical times, um, some of the, the neighboring gods, they did terrible things as well. But also, as Jesus was walking on the scene, he recognized that many of his, his brother and sister Hebrews, the Jews, were doing things that they thought were making them close with God, when in reality, they were not. As God presented to the Abraham and, and having the covenant for people to follow, it involved following lots of God's rules as part of the covenant. And as the people developed their, their theology of how to work with that, things began happening over the centuries. And as it, we came to the time of Jesus, 
Um, different Jewish writings were developed that helped people to understand the specifics. And it's things that weren't in the scriptures, but it's more like commentaries with the Talmud and Mishnah. So they had these writings that the, the rabbis and the people would look at to know exactly what does it mean not to work on the Sabbath, you know, and to give rules according to that so that you would have more specifics to go on rather than just saying you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. And it involved how far could you walk on a Sabbath before it became work versus just a, a stroll. But as they really fenced in these rules and made them tighter and tighter, it made it even harder and harder to follow these rules. And I think whenever we have a religion that's based simply on rules and how well you follow them, I think it promotes a type of hypocrisy in our own lives because if, as we admit, as we today, as we understand what it means to follow Jesus, that if we base that solely on how well we follow the rules, then we would all perish and that we can not follow all the letter of the law and what God tells us to do. With, and Jesus clarified that in saying that you think that you're not sinning um, by not committing adultery. Jesus clarified if you're thinking lustful thoughts, you're committing adultery. So Jesus even clarified that the possibility of people being reaching a stage of perfection and maintaining that forever is something that is, would be miraculous if that happened. In fact, Jesus is the only one who maintained that sense of sinlessness throughout his life. So as we turn to the pages here, we recognize that many of the people, I believe, during Jesus' times had developed this theology and this, this own sense of hypocrisy within themselves that, yeah, I, I can't follow everything perfectly and God understands but because of my heritage, that I am a son or daughter of Abraham, I'm good. Because of my heritage that I have, I'm good. And also begin making the mistake that if I am prosperous in what I do, then that's a mark that means that God's love is on me. And because I'm prosperous, then I'm good. I don't have to worry about other things in my life um, having the heritage and the prosperity, then I'm good and I'm set. But we recognize through this passage that we're turning to here in Luke 16 that this isn't the case. As Jesus is presenting to the people he's talking to, he presents a series of parables. And the one that we're going to look at is amazing in that it's, it's providing shock value and that Jesus is blatantly telling the people that just because you have a heritage within being a, a child of Abraham, just because you think things are going really well in your life, that's not what God requires of us. That God requires something else. And as he told us, this is in major shock value. And I think very often in Jesus' teachings, he's doing this great reversal. He's doing these things as he turns things upside down to shake things up so that people begin to really appreciate and understand what God's requiring of them, what God is requiring of us. And it's not something that's based on our heritage, our things within um, our own prosperity, but this incredible thing is that God is telling us that this gift of eternal life is available to all of us, and we can't point to certain things in our lives um, like our, our wealth that we have, and recognize everyone who is in this room is wealthy. 
You know, as we look and compare of what we have with the rest of the world, we are, are, are blessed in so many ways that everyone in this room is wealthy and that we have our needs met in such a way that the rest of the world um, does not have what we have. Let's peek in here into Luke 16, and I'm going to start reading with verse 19. And as many of Jesus begins his parables in certain ways, um, this one he begins the similar way, that once there was a rich man who used to dress in purple and fine linen and live in great luxury every day. And so as we look at this passage, he's dressed in purple, and what's the significance of that? So I was, was looking at that, and I've heard that you know purple is the the color of royalty during this time period because the dye for purple, it was very, very expensive. And I looked that up and some sources said that it take, it, the, the color purple, the dye was created from some shellfish that are in the Mediterranean and they have to take over 10,000 shellfish to create one ounce of this or one gram of this dye to be able to dye their clothing. So it's, it's very expensive to create. But also... Um, a side note, it said that with all this shellfish, that this dye had a very distinct odor. And so you'd smell like fish if you had your robe dyed in this purple color. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the problems of the wealthy, um, but maybe they thought that was a status symbol. It's like, what's that smell? It's like, yes, I paid a lot of money for this robe. Um, but yes, so purple was also stinky during their time period. So, but he's, he's wearing purple. It's a symbol and a status that I'm important and I am good. And then fine linen. Um, clothing was very, very expensive during this time period, much more than what ours is today, as obviously everything is handmade and takes a tremendous amount of, of time to make. But having fine linen with those fine threads was, was incredibly expensive to have. And then to contrast to that, as Jesus sets up this story, he's saying there's a beggar named Lazarus. So you have two different people. Now, something that's very unique in parables um, is that Jesus named a person, named the, the person. And there's, I read that there is a, a parable that is similar in some ways, but also very different that was in some of the rabbi writings during the time period. And the rich man was named, not the poor man. And I think as Jesus is giving a name for this poor man, it's connecting the dots that this is, that the, the person of importance in this story isn't the person of wealth. It's not the person who's got the, the purple smelly clothing, but it's the, the poor person. And he gives him the name of Lazarus. And I, yeah, I was looking too, because it's so interesting that you know, who did Jesus raise from the dead? Lazarus. Is there a connection here? A few people think there are, but most of the commentaries that I looked at think that they're distinct people. But it is um, one of those things I scratch my head at as I read um, this passage. So a beggar named Lazarus, who was covered with sores, was brought to the gate. So they have this, this gate that's a, a separation between these two um, people, the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. And Lazarus was always trying to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs used to come and lick his sores. So even in this situation, now, 
some of it, I know my daughter would think, oh, that's cool, his do- dogs are coming to lick him, and she would just think that was the coolest thing. But here with dogs are considered like scavengers in the culture, they're not well liked. So this is another description that this poor guy has dogs licking his sores that he has. Um, and within their context, as Jesus' listeners are listening, they're thinking, you know, in their head, okay, you got the rich man, this one is blessed of God, and then this poor man is obviously things are not going right in his relationship with God because he wouldn't have to deal with all these horrible circumstances, you know, if he was close with God because that's just not the way the world works. So as we continue, one day the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. So here we get a picture that within this situation, the beggar was escorted to the afterlife, to the good place with angels. And then as we continue, we recognize the rich man also died and was just buried. So Jesus isn't commenting on um, from that point on after their death, you've got the poor man who's escorted by angels and the dead man is just buried. And in the afterlife, some of your um, versions of your Bible may say Hades, but recognizing this is a, a Greek word looking at the, the grave of looking at the afterlife. And there he was in, this is the rich man, was in constant torment. And he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. A concept during the writings as well is that a symbol of being in God's grace, of being with the presence of God after death, is saying that you're in Abraham's bosom, of looking like you are in the place after death. And we have, we're blessed as we have of all the scriptures, we have a more detailed understanding of the afterlife. But as Jesus is telling the story, the afterlife He's not trying to give all the details to that. The main point he's trying to tell us is at this point is that how we live our lives is very important and does reflect on whether we're part of the kingdom of God or not. And we may be surprised in the end by what our behavior has been and what we think is saving us and is not saving us. So in the afterlife where he was in constant torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool off my tongue because I am suffering in this fire. Even here at this point in the afterlife, the the person of the rich man, do we see an attitude of repentance here? No, we're seeing this sense of arrogance that even as this afterlife is starting, that he is requesting that the, that Lazarus, the poor man, serve him and do stuff for him. And he's not even addressing him. He's, he's even ordering Abraham around and telling Abraham what to do. This rich man has grown up with a sense of, of entitlement so much that he feels like he can order and have other people do everything for him, including Abraham. 
I mean, the arrogance here is amazing. But Abraham said, my child, remember that during your lifetime you received blessings while Lazarus received hardships. But now he's being comforted here while you suffer. Besides all this, a wide chasm has been fixed between us so that those who want to come cross from this side cannot do so, nor can they cross from your side to us. And the rich man said, Then I, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't end up in this place of torture as well. Even now, he's ordering things around like he's in charge and wants Lazarus to go and talk to his brothers. Abraham said, they've got Moses and the prophets. They have the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. They should listen to, to those writings. But the rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead went to them, they would repent. So notice even here his arrogance. So Abraham's saying, they have the writings. And the rich man's like, no, that's not good enough. Send the poor man. If your brothers do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone were to rise from the dead. For all of us, this is the story of looking at shock. And I want us to be shocked as much as the hearers were uh, when Jesus was teaching this. As we look at what is it in our own lives do we become comfortable with an understanding of what it means to be good with God and in God's grace that we become complacent just like the rich man? Or do we understand what God truly requires of us and what we point to? You see, heritage is not an automatic in. Now, if you've been taught by your family to go to church and respect God, that's an awesome thing. But just because you were taught a certain thing growing up, that's not enough. It's not what you've been taught. It's not what your heritage is. It doesn't mean what your church family has done in the past. It's where you're at. Do you have a connection with Jesus? Do you have an understanding of who God calls us to be to be a follower of Christ? Do, do we have an understanding of what it means to be putting Jesus first in our lives in all that we do, in all that we say? It is so easy to begin slipping to looking at things that make us think we're okay. It could be church attendance. It could be doing things and doing good deeds for other people. I remember talking with some friends at Purdue when we were seniors and we were talking about our faith and what had, for each of us, what enabled growth over the years. And one of my dear friends who um, actually works at um, Eli Lilly, he was commenting that he recognized probably his sophomore year that the things that he believed about God were things that his, his church family and his parents had taught him and he became very comfortable with that. But as he was recognizing his life, his faith was not his own. His faith was something that was given to him by his family and by his church family. And he recognized it, it was faith, but it was weak. It wasn't something that he, that he owned. It was something that was given to him. And so he recognized that 
Um, so much of the next two years of his life, he began um, dismantling his understanding of things and then reconstructing his faith and his understanding of who God is, um, basing it off God's word. And as he rebuilt an understanding of his faith and who God is and who he was and how he was to respond, he rebuilt his faith. And when he was done, he recognized, wow, this, this house of my faith looks a lot like what I already had, but this is mine. This is something that I and God working together created within our own connection with each other. And it's not something that was just handed to me. And that's my challenge for all of us. Is your faith something that you and God have built together? Or is your faith something that was just handed to you and you think, oh, that's nice and I'm going to be a follower of Christ? Jesus wants each of us to understand that Jesus wants to be the most important thing in your life. And Jesus wants each of us to understand that that requires commitment. That Jesus gave the ultimate commitment with his life for us. And Jesus wants to, for us to really understand and be who God calls us to be, is to have commitment back. A commitment of love, a commitment of grace, a commitment of understanding, but a commitment of putting God first and understanding who Jesus is and what his commandments are for us that are based on love and, and loving others. So as we worship this morning, I want us to, to really address these issues in our own life. And I want to look at a couple questions. One is, do I look at success as proof of my faith? Like, do I look at, because things are going well in my life, that that means I'm good with God? Or do we have a deeper understanding of what that means? And then I think for us to really have a scorecard to understand is my faith what God really wants from me? Am I responding the way? In my life, I keep challenging myself by asking myself, how do I see my faith affecting those around me? How does my faith in Jesus affect people around us? Is my faith contagious to other people or to people because of they, the way they see my faith does it make people run from Jesus or run toward Jesus and so just as we take a moment and as Linda plays a little bit think about these things in your relationship with Jesus this morning as we all strive to be who Christ is calling us to be in ultimate ways and as we respond to understand that Jesus so loves you that he wants you to be a vital part of his kingdom and is calling you to that and me to that now. God, as we pursue you, teach us what that means in a, a helpful way. Teach us how to be people of love, people of your kingdom, people of your word. God, as we pause now, may your Holy Spirit speak to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.